three in your Bibles. That song we just sang certainly gets the main truth right. That truth that we looked at last time, verse 15 of John 3, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. As we step into verses 16 and 17, normally these are the verses that we focus on when we are considering the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God the Son. And yet this evening I would like us to look at it from just a little bit of a different perspective as that song we just sang uh, concluded. It concluded with the words, Wonderful His love to me. And that is as even the song kind of relates it. It gives the truth of the gospel and then it gives the proclamation of what the gospel means. Certainly the gospel means salvation. We know that the gospel is affected through the Holy Spirit. We know that the gospel was secured through Jesus Christ and therefore Jesus Christ being the central figure of the gospel. But what does the gospel reflect? It reflects God's love. What is the gospel at its very root? It is God's love to man. And so we come back to the, the third chapter of John today. A conversation between Jesus and the man named Nicodemus, introduced two weeks ago as a Pharisee and a master of Israel. Nicodemus had been listening to the teachings of Jesus, and many questions came to his mind. In verse 4, he questioned the new birth, asking how it could possibly be that a man could be born when he is old. In verse 9, again, he asked Jesus, after further clarification, how can these things be? As he sought to understand not just what the new birth was, but how it was that a man could receive such a gift from God. Jesus answered his question by describing the humble submission of the Son of God to the Father, that through the death of Christ on the cross, all men might have life who believe on Jesus' name. Now, as we look at the passage, it is possible that verse 15 is where Jesus Christ ended his speaking. Now, if you have a red letter addition to your Bible, you'll see red letters all the way through verse 21. And I would agree with the, the red letter edition Bibles that through verse 21 is most likely all Jesus Christ speaking. However, it is possible both linguistically as you look at the text and even as you look at the context as you can recognize the subtle shift from this conversational tone that Jesus Christ had in verses 1 through 15 to more of a declarative tone in verses 16 through 21. And so it is possible that Jesus Christ finished his speaking in verse 15 and verses 16 through 21 are divine commentary on what Jesus Christ had already said. However, either way, uh, it, it really doesn't matter except that if Jesus Christ is still speaking in verses 16 through 21, then perhaps what he was doing is answering a final question in Nicodemus' mind, maybe a question that had gone unasked but had certainly been there or one could recognize was there, and the question would be, why? In verse 14 and 15, Jesus Christ said that the Son of Man must be lifted up. He must die, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But why? Why would Jesus need to be lifted up? Why was the new birth necessary? When God had already spoken through the law, 
Why would he send a Messiah to change the way things were understood? Perhaps some of these questions were going through Nicodemus' mind. And it might have been for this very reason that Jesus Christ continued teaching in verses 16 through 21. Through the two verses that we'll look at this evening, verses 16 and 17, we'll see two important truths. Two important truths regarding God the Father's uh, relation to you in regard to eternal salvation. Two weeks ago we looked at how the Holy Spirit was related to salvation. Last week we looked at how God the Son was related to salvation. This week we will look at how God the Father is related to your salvation. Look with me if you would at verses 16 and 17. We know them well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. The first important truth we'll see this evening is found in the first half of verse 16 the truth being this, God offers you salvation in love. What is God the Father's role? God the Father offers you salvation in love. Let us remember again the biblical definition of love. We can get interactive for a moment. Can somebody define for me love according to the definition that we've memorized? Taylor. Very good. An unconditional choice to do what is best for the one who is loved, regardless of self-interest or circumstances. See, it's important that we first define what it means that God offers us salvation in love. Because if we don't have the right definition of love, then we don't have the right understanding of what God has done for us. If we see love as a feeling, as an emotion in its entirety, then we begin to get a little bit off base as to what it must mean that God loves us. See, if God loves us and therefore he conforms himself to the definition that society would mean as far as love is concerned, that means that God will not chasten his children. That, mean that, that means that God will not show his children any potential of judgment. And if God's love for the world was the way the world has defined love today as something that means you cannot chasten, you cannot tell someone that they're wrong, you cannot tell them anything that would offend them or hurt them, then all of a sudden everyone must be going to heaven because that is what God's love would have to be in order for God to conform to what society has thought of as love. But that's not what love is. As we look at the biblical definition of love, as we consider what Taylor just quoted from us, that definition that we've learning, that we have learned for some time, excuse me, we recognize that love is a choice, and it's to do what is best, regardless of self-interest or circumstances. Love contains emotions, love is expressed in emotions, but love transcends emotions. So we needed to remember the biblical definition of love. We must also remember who it is that God loves. Verse 16, for God so loved the world. First, remember that the world is a designation for the sinful, not the righteous. Romans 5, 6 tells us, for when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. For the ungodly, Christ died. Verse, uh, Romans 5 verse 10, just a few verses later. 
But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so when the scriptures speak of the world, in most contexts it is speaking of the unrighteous. Now at some point, every man was unrighteous. Every man was a part of the world. Consider again what we have learned over the past many weeks. The Holy Spirit is the effective agent of our salvation. God the Son is the one who secured our salvation through his death on the cross. But then consider that God, the Holy Spirit, who initiates that salvific process through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that thing that we call being born again, and consider that Jesus Christ, as he came to this earth, as he died on the cross for our sins, thus securing our salvation, consider that both of these members of the Trinity did what they did because the Father wanted them to. Jesus Christ went to the cross because that's what the Father wanted him to do. The Holy Spirit indwells us at salvation because that's what God the Father wants him to do. They did what they did at the command of God the Father. Salvation, your salvation, happens, happened, because God the Father wanted you to be saved. Because God the Father loves you. We remember that the world is a designation for the sinful, not the righteous. We also need to remember that the world is inclusive. When the scriptures speak of God so loved the world, it's inclusive, it's not selective. God's love is even greater than that which we have already expressed in this message. God's love was extended to you not when you were at your best, but when you were at your worst. God's love touched you in the deepest dungeons of your sin, not on the highest peaks of personal righteousness. God's love did not just extend to you or to you and to me or to any select group, much less an elect group. God's love is extended to the world in its entirety, regardless of its response. Now imagine this with me. A world that is in rebellion against God. A large portion of the people of that world who are dead in their sins, unrighteous, who don't even want to know this God. In fact, the largest portion of this world want to elevate themselves to the position of God, want to make themselves God. We look around us at the world and we see men that hate God, that scorn God, that raise themselves up to be God, that worship other things in place of God, that have no desire to have God in their mind. No desire to have God in front of their eyes. They want God removed from everything and anything because they don't want the reminder that God exists and that they are accountable to this God. And when we think of those wicked men and women who hate God and who hate everything tied to God, we must realize that God sent Jesus Christ to die to pay for their sins. And when we think of when I think of myself and you think of yourself, many of us having been saved when we were younger, not necessarily recognizing at that point the great capacity of our hearts unto sinfulness, 
maybe many of us not having experienced the deepest dungeons of where sin could have taken us, addictions and um, immorality and all of these things, the, the Lord spared many of us from that and yet, seeing around us a world with the exact same capacity that we have in our hearts to sin, to do evil. We see wars, we see murders, we see thefts, we see selfishness, we see materialism, and it's all right here in each one of us. We're not born good. We're not, we don't have tendencies toward being good. We are sinners. And God didn't die for us good people. God didn't die for a bunch of righteous people. God died for sinners of which you and I are certainly a part. This means that God loves you whether you accept that love or you reject that love. This means that God loves you whether your life is lived to God's glory or as God's enemy. This means that God loves you whether you are a law-abiding citizen or you are the worst of criminals. God's love is not exclusive, nor is it selective. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for the worst of the worst and everyone else as well. Now this is the greatest of truths. If God's love had any possibility of being selective, then you and I would have no ability to ever be secure in our own salvation. If it were possible that God's love did not extend to even one man, if it were possible that God's love did not extend to even one man, then it would be possible that that one man could be me. If it were possible that God's love could not extend to even one person, it is possible that that person could be you. And if it's possible that God's love does not extend to me or does not extend to you, then it is possible that I, regardless of how much I might want to be saved, would be doomed to a life outside of the love of God and therefore outside of God's salvation. Do you see why there's such a great danger in thinking that God's love could possibly be selective? Do you see why it is impossible when we consider the character of God that God's love could be selective. That God could only love a pocket of this world. That God had only placed his love upon a small group of people. Because if it's possible that even one man is outside of the love of God, that one man or woman could be you. It's an unfathomable concept, but it really doesn't need to be fathomed. Because when we read John 3.16, 3, it's quite clear, is it not? For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. The result of God's love is realized. We, we, we've considered God's love. We recognize that His love is so great that it extends to everyone, regardless of their response to God. The man who spends his entire life hating God and goes to his deathbed, cursing God in his lips, Jesus Christ died for that man. To the very moment of his death, the blood of Jesus Christ was still sufficient to cover his sins if he would but accept it. And God loves us as well. See, the result of God's love, God's love was realized 
through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The day that Jesus Christ became flesh, God's love came down to earth. Quite literally, if someone were to ask you to describe God's love, someone were to come up and say, how would you describe God's love? You could do no better than to describe the person and work of Jesus Christ. We know from John 1.1 that the Word, the divine second person of the Trinity, existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity past. For all of eternity, as far as the inspired record reflects, the three individuals of the divine Trinity had never once been separated. As far as we know from the Scriptures, the three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, had always dwelt in complete union. We can see it in Genesis as the Trinity is speaking one with another. Let us make man in our own image. As they speak one to another about the creative process. How can God be separated? Certainly we recognize that the Trinity are three distinct persons, but they are in fact one God. Three persons that dwell in absolute unity, absolute oneness, no variance, no conflict. And yet when God sent Jesus Christ to this earth, He did so with a purpose. We read it in verse 16. That purpose was that the divine second person of the Trinity would bear the sins of the world. Prophetic accounts assure us that this has always been God's plan. Genesis 3.15 tells us that Satan would crush the heel of the woman's seed, that there would be a crushing of the seed of the woman. Isaiah 53 gives the prophetic recollection of Messiah's agony by the express will of God the Father. What we must understand is that even before Adam fell to sin, God loved the world enough to determine that he would allow the divine trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to fall out of fellowship for you and for me. And so as Jesus Christ hung on that cross, He said those words in Hebrew, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Literally, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the darkest moment in all of history. The moment when God the Son was separated from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. When God the Son was separated in fellowship because at that moment He was bearing your sin and bearing my sin. That is the extent of God's love. God's love went so far that He knowingly and willingly sent His Son. A part of the very oneness that is God. To be separated from that unity for you and for me. The darkest moment in all of history was accomplished to secure your salvation. Does that make you feel inadequate? Small? Unworthy? The reason why you will one day be in heaven if you have believed on Jesus Christ for your salvation is because Jesus Christ bore your sin. It's not because of what you did. 
It's not because of what you could do. It's not because of what you would do. It's not because you were chosen in some divine lottery. It's because God the Son willingly fell out of fellowship with the Trinity, took upon himself your sin so that you could receive eternal life. The first important truth, God offers you salvation in love. The second important truth, second half of verse 16 and verse 17, God offers you salvation, not condemnation. God offers you salvation, not condemnation. We're going to look at this more thoroughly next week, but let's look at it together. We'll read these two verses again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Notice as we begin our second point, God offers you salvation, not condemnation. First of all, the extent of the salvation. Those who believe on Jesus Christ, to what extent are they saved? To the extent that they should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is rightly stated that death is the greatest enemy of man. You can have a wonderful life of health and happiness. You can have riches, you can have fame, you can have power, you can have a fulfilling job, you can have a loving family, you can have all that life has to offer, but you cannot cheat death. Death is coming. Death will come. Death is incurable. But in Christ, death has lost its power. In Christ, death has lost its sting. In Christ, death is not an end, it is a beginning. It is not the end of everything, it is the beginning of something new. And not just something new, but something far superior. In Christ, death is the beginning of everlasting life. God's gift of His Son on the cross did not simply purchase for you a chance at salvation. One that needs to be reinforced by good works or baptism or church membership or giving. God's gift of His Son on the cross paid the debt for your sin. It paid the debt in full for every man, every woman, and every child. And thus purchased for every man, every woman, and every child everlasting life. But as we spoke of last week, in that great analogy of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, because just because Jesus Christ's blood has purchased salvation for every man, this does not mean that every man will receive this salvation. For as the verse very clearly states, only those who believe on the name of Jesus Christ are recipients of everlasting life. Verse 17 was the gospel writer's way of addressing what might have been the final question of Nicodemus or perhaps simply the final question of any Jew as he was reading through this account. See, the reality of God's love is undeniable throughout the whole body of Scripture. Consider with me the words as God passed by Moses in Exodus 34. You recall the story. Moses asked God to show him his glory. 
God said, if, if you see me, you will die. No man can see me and live, but I will pass by you and you will see my back as I pass by you. And I will declare my name unto you. And as God the Father passed by Moses, this is what he declared. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. The truth that Messiah must suffer was also made clear from Scripture. Consider the prophecies of Daniel, of Zechariah, of Isaiah, all the way back to Genesis even. I think of Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, which says this, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That God would pour his love upon the whole world, as opposed to the Jews exclusively, would have been difficult for a Jew like Nicodemus to swallow but still undeniable from the prophecies in Isaiah and Hosea that God would invite those who are not his people to be his people. Consider Isaiah 11, verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. But where the Jew would have difficulty accepting Messiah was really that Messiah was supposed to come in judgment to rule with a rod of iron, to destroy the strength of the nations that stand in opposition to his glory. See, all of these things would have been running through the mind of a Jew. He would have recognized that God is love and that God loves the world. He would have recognized somehow that this Messiah, God in flesh, Emmanuel, must bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. He would recognize at some point the Gentiles would seek to this Messiah. And he would recognize, however, though, and be looking for the judgment of God upon the unbelieving world. As Joel 3, verse 15 through 17 prophesies. Listen to these verses. The sun and the moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of his children Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. As we consider all of these verses and all of these thoughts, is it any wonder that the scriptures speak of the gospel as a stumbling block for the Jews? As the Jews would get this tunnel vision of judgment upon Gentiles and deliverance for their own nation, can you imagine how there might be a tunnel vision that would cause them to feel as though salvation will and always is and always will be of and for the Jews alone? 
because they refused to believe. They could not understand. They could not believe that prior to Messiah's coming as judge of all the earth, he came as a savior of all the earth. But that is what we read. God did not send Jesus Christ to condemn the world. That was the Jews' problem. They thought when Messiah comes, he is coming to condemn all of these pagans. He is coming to condemn this world. But God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. The first advent of Jesus Christ was not about God's judgment. The first appearance of Jesus Christ was not about God judging this world. It was about God loving this world. It was about God being what he is, which is a God who is gracious and long-suffering, full of compassion and mercy. Now, make no mistake, the day is coming when God will again send his son to earth. And on that day, the grace and mercy will be ended and the time of judgment will have begun. And that is why there is today an urgency. Because God did love the world enough to send his only begotten son. So that every sinner, you and me, might be recipients of this gift of eternal life. But the scriptures tell us that there is a day coming. That day and that hour is known by no man. And on that day... On that day, Jesus Christ will return. And on the day that Jesus Christ returns, the time of mercy, that extended time of grace whereby God has extended this gift of salvation will be over. And Jesus Christ will come as judge and will judge the world of their sin. As Jesus continued to speak with Nicodemus, he sought to connect the spiritual dots between the work of salvation through the Holy Spirit's new birth, through the means of salvation, securing that salvation through the humble submission of the Son of God to the death of the cross, and then the reason for this salvation, a reason rooted firmly in the love of God. Jesus' statement served to present a very succinct reason for all that Christ was doing and teaching. Why was Christ on that earth? Why was he doing the miracles he was doing? Why was he declaring repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Why was he proving himself with miracles? Why was he there? Because God's love had sent him. Messiah was there because God loved the world. Jesus Christ was on earth as the ultimate gift to mankind. Jesus Christ was there because the law was weak through the flesh and God loved the world too much to withhold from you. God loved you too much to withhold from you a means of eternal life. Jesus Christ was there because the blood of lambs and of goats could never take away sin. Jesus Christ was there because God's law was too much for any man's sin nature to successfully and to consistently obey. God's expectations, God's holiness was too great for any one man to meet. Except one. Man needed a force, a 
person, an atonement, a mediator, a sacrifice outside of himself to grant him the victory over sin. And man needed a more perfect mediator than another sinful man to plead his cause before the Father. And God loved the people of this world so much that he met these great needs that man had in one great act through the only means possible by coming and saving us himself by sending his son Jesus Christ to bear our penalty upon himself thus satisfying God's perfect justice and redeeming man's sinful soul for those as we see in verses 16 and 17 who believe on him. Let's pray.